Hey listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Cavalry Audio Tucked away in the middle of a bustling commercial district in Guatemala City, in between nightclubs and shopping centers, there used to be a small men's clothing shop. It sold trendy European suits, shirts, ties, and accessories. The shop was actually inside a nondescript two-story house converted for commercial purposes. A placard on the wall outside read, Boutique Emilio, in burnished gold lettering. Inside, the shop wasn't that much more impressive. There were two small wood-paneled rooms with racks of pricey imported clothing, dressing mirrors, and headless mannequins. At first glance, the shop wasn't that remarkable. But for a long time, going back to the 1970s and 80s, Boutique Emilio was known for dressing the most powerful men in Guatemala. Politicians, military officers, titans of industry. For example, on the day of his inauguration in 1986, President Vinicio Cerezo wore a bespoke suit fitted and purchased at Boutique Emilio. But this quaint little clothing shop was known for something else, a side business. Boutique Emilio didn't just sell suits, it trafficked in secrets. It was reputed to be the headquarters of a clandestine security and intelligence unit called La Oficinita, or the Little Office. Back in the 80s and 90s, La Oficinita was rumored to have been the center of operations for multiple attempted coups, assassination plots, and disinformation campaigns. Remember the SIACS I told you about in our first episode? It's an acronym that stands for Cuerpos Ilegales y Aparatos Clandestinos de Seguridad. In English, that's Illegal Clandestine Security Apparatuses. These are the criminal organizations that mutated from the secret right-wing intelligence units that wreaked so much havoc and caused so much misery during Guatemala's decades-long civil war. By all appearances, Boutique Emilio was one of these SIACs. Okay, but what does this have to do with the Rosenberg case? Why do we need to talk about this little clothing shop that for years served as a front for all sorts of illicit activities? Well, it just so happens that Boutique Emilio was owned and operated by none other than Luis Mendizabal, longtime friend of the Rosenberg family. Luis Mendizabal, an avuncular old man with perfectly coiffed white hair and a bushy white mustache, was the same man who arranged the recording of the Rosenberg video. And Luis Mendizabal was a spy. From Cavalry Audio 
and executive producer Oscar Isaac. I'm Edgar Castillo, and this is The Rosenberg Case. You're listening to Episode 3, The Little Office. From the time he opened Boutique Emilio in the 1970s, Mendizabal used the office behind his shop, the so-called little office, to do some pretty shady stuff. He used his connections to the most powerful men in Guatemala to set up an informal intelligence network. He helped fund far-right insurgent groups and even ran arms smuggling operations. Mendizabal was like a character out of a John Le Carré novel, a veritable tailor of Guatemala. While a guy like Mario David Garcia was a public figure, using his radio platform like a bullhorn to spread disinformation, Mendizabal was content to remain ensconced in the shadows of his clothing shop, pulling strings like a puppet master. Just as an example of what I'm talking about, Mendizabal had successfully used his connections to obtain a highly lucrative 10-year government contract to produce passports. That contract was actually about to run out when our story starts. As Mendizabal's personal attorney, Rodrigo Rosenberg was actually managing the complex process of renewing that contract. So, given the extent of the old tailor's influence, it was little wonder that when President Colón discovered that Mendizábal and Mario David García were behind the recording and broadcast of the Rosenberg video, he couldn't help but see a conspiracy at play. Indeed, if Mendizábal was trying to destabilize the Colón presidency, it wouldn't have been the first time. Colón actually hired Mendizábal as an intelligence and security consultant upon taking office. Remember that they had been old business partners. But just a few months into his term, seven listening devices and video cameras were found in the president's office and residence. Was it a coincidence that these bugs were planted around the same time that Mendizábal had access to Colón's security team? Was it a coincidence that the old master spy was involved in this Rosenberg affair? Was this yet another attempt to make mischief for the Colombs? Maybe. But what are we saying here? That Mendizábal had Rodrigo Rosenberg murdered as part of an insanely intricate plot to overthrow President Colón? That seemed pretty outlandish, even for a place like Guatemala. Perhaps the old tailor somehow coerced Rosenberg into filming the video. Mendizábal took pains to emphatically deny that rumor. Indeed, forensic linguistic experts analyzed the video looking for indications that Rosenberg delivered his address while under duress. They found no such evidence. No, by all accounts, Mendizábal had been a friend of the family for decades and genuinely loved Rosenberg, a sentiment the younger man shared. 
And so, despite Colomb's suspicions and increasing paranoia, the initial consensus was that Mendizábal and García's involvement in the Rosenberg case was limited to the production and distribution of the video. It appeared as if they were genuinely helping Rosenberg publicize the findings of his investigation. Did they know that the video would create a national scandal? Maybe not. But if their intention was to destabilize the Colomb government, guess what? It was working. Maybe the best way to explain Latin American politics is with an old anecdote told by Gabriel García Márquez, the great Colombian author. A reporter called García Márquez to ask him about something that had happened in a small Colombian town. Apparently, two men arrived at a school in a truck and said, we're here for the furniture. The schoolmaster hadn't heard they were coming, but opened the doors for them anyway. All the school's furniture was loaded up onto the truck and the two men drove off. Later, they found out that the two men were thieves. When asked for his response, García Márquez only said, normal. That's how things tend to go down. Corruption plus comedy, tinged with a sense of the surreal. But it's perhaps the great writer's completely deadpan response that captures the essence of Latin American politics. That total lack of surprise whenever something bizarre or batshit happens. A Mexican president holding a state funeral for his amputated leg? Normal. A Bolivian president trading over 100,000 square kilometers of land to Brazil in exchange for a horse? Totally normal. A banana company hiring an American mercenary named Lee Christmas to topple the government of Honduras? 100% normal. So given the chaotic, often fantastical nature of Latin American politics, you should pay attention when Roberto Isurieta, a veteran political strategist known as the James Carville of Latin America, says that the Rosenberg video was the most striking thing he'd ever seen. From the time he served as communications director for the president of Ecuador back in 1998, Isurieta advised and helped elect presidents in Mexico, Ecuador, Peru, the Dominican Republic, and in Guatemala, where he worked on Colom's political campaign in 2007. He was a liberal, a passionate advocate for progressive policies. But he was far from an idealist. Isurieta was a student of history and had seen enough turbulence in Latin America to know that its people often preferred a functioning dictatorship to a dysfunctional democracy. In 2009, Isurieta was living in Washington, D.C., teaching a class in political crisis management at George Washington University when he got a call from President Colom's administration. Isurieta wasn't surprised to hear from Colom's office. He had maintained close ties with the president since leaving Guatemala. 
but he was taken aback at what they had to tell him. After a quick debrief, Isurieta was emailed a YouTube link to the Rosenberg video. He stopped what he was doing and watched the video in its entirety. Uh, someone from the palace, I don't remember his name or the position, he sent me the video. And he said, I want you to see this video and I don't want to comment it. So you have the first impression. So I review the video and I say, I'm going there. This is bad. He was on the next available flight to Guatemala. By the time Isurieta arrived on the afternoon of May 11th, one day after Rosenberg's murder, the anti-Colom demonstrations had swelled. Over 30,000 protesters, the vast majority clad in stark white to symbolize purity, rallied in front of the National Palace, carrying homemade signs emblazoned with Rosenberg's face, demanding Colom's resignation and chanting asesino, murderer in Spanish. The media called the burgeoning protest movement the White Tsunami. When I arrived there, I wanted to see the president, of course. And I decided to walk to get there. I mean, I arrived downtown and I knew that there were rallies and I wanted to feel what is what people feel. In response, the Colombs decided to bring in their own supporters from rural areas around the city to stage counter-protests in favor of the president. The result, pandemonium. The plaza in front of the presidential palace was swarmed by agitators and protesters in favor and against the president, drowning each other out in a clamor of competing shouts and chants. We're here in support of our president and against these lies trying to bring him down, said one Colón defender. Well, number one, of course, Rosenberg was dead. Alvaro Colón did not kill him. So the question is, what happened here? Who killed him? But an innocent man has been accused. And it's someone that I know, and I'm going there to help. The president addressed his supporters directly, saying, We are living a serious and profound crisis, possibly the most complicated crisis that we have had in the years of democracy in Guatemala. Look me in the eyes. I don't know the motives of those who made that video. I have my head up and my heart clean. Of course, that's what he would say. The elephant in the room, the hairy jumbo pachyderm that nobody wanted to acknowledge, was that Colón might actually be guilty. A possibility even his closest aides privately accepted as real. There is some evidence to indicate that the president's heart may not have been as clean as he insisted, but we'll save that for next time. In any case, when President Colomb declared the Rosenberg case to be a crisis, he wasn't wrong. Even after less than two days, it was readily apparent, especially to Roberto Isurieta, that this was more than just a political scandal. Isurieta, the master strategist, realized that nothing less than the future of Guatemalan democracy was at stake. Uh, 
The truth is, there is a saying that is very true. The civilian population is to the gorilla force as water is to a fish. In this case, the gorilla force cannot exist if it doesn't have the support and collaboration from the civilian population. That was Otto Perez Molina as a young soldier, back when he was fighting leftist rebels during the Guatemalan Civil War, back when he was committing war crimes. But when our story begins, the ex-general everyone called Mano Dura, or Iron Fist, was the leader of Guatemala's most conservative political party. This was the same man Colom had defeated in 2007. But as the president flailed in the face of the Rosenberg scandal, Perez Molina and the conservatives were circling above like hungry vultures. On his radio show, Mario David Garcia was taking every opportunity to level savage critiques against the government, fomenting the already massive demonstrations. Rumors were already flying that the military, led by Perez Molina, was ready to oust President Colom from office by force if necessary. Make no mistake, the Colom administration was in a fight for its life. Still, Roberto Isurieta believed that the president was up to the challenge. And I think I can, I can repeat this. I feel free to repeat this. When I came and after then I saw the rally, I came to the president to talk to the president and he was calm. He let me in, he was calm. And I told him, how are you doing? So well, the circumstances, I'm okay. And then we discuss what I, basically what I'm saying, you know, the problem is, is this and uh, yes, yes. It was a brief meeting, I would say 10 minutes. And then when I was leaving his office, we were the two of us alone. He looked at me and said, Roberto, have faith. He was, he was a, he's a very spiritual person. Have faith. The truth always comes up. That's my fate, and it should be your fate. And I look at him and say, thank you, Mr. President. But I remember that I knew what was my answer, but I wasn't going to ruin a very, the, the core of his strength, which was fate. Because my answer was, what well, we don't have is time. Time. It had only been a couple of days, but they were already running out of it. If indeed President Colom was innocent of the charges Rosenberg laid out in his video, the best way to prove it was to solve the murders, to find out who ordered the assassination of Khalil Musa and who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg to cover it up. But how? Colom couldn't entrust the investigation to his own attorney general without falling prey to further accusations of corruption and collusion. Even the president's staunchest supporters were asking him to recuse himself. So who could he turn to? Who could possibly investigate the Rosenberg case in an impartial manner and bring it to a fair and trustworthy resolution? We need time, we need serenity, 
we need for everyone to play by the rules? A criminal investigation in a nation of laws requires deliberate and confidential procedures as a prerequisite for success of that investigation. I understand that it is really hard to ask for trust in a country where people have lost their faith in their institution, but that is what we need. That was Carlos Castesana, then 51 years old, speaking to the press right after taking charge of the Rosenberg case. Carlos Castesana, a prosecutor from Spain, was the man placed in charge of finding out whether a democratically elected president was guilty of embezzlement, money laundering, fraud, and conspiracy to commit murder. Easy peasy, right? When our story begins, Castesana had already been in Guatemala for two years. In 2007, the prosecutor was named head of the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. I'll just use its Spanish acronym, CICIG. CICIG was an independent organization charged with investigating and prosecuting major and sensitive cases of corruption in Guatemala. It was created by the United Nations and Guatemala in a treaty-level agreement and was, in part, a recognition that criminal justice institutions in Guatemala were not working. An acknowledgement that Guatemala needed to outsource its fight against corruption. Castesana rode in from Spain like a white knight, making bold promises. He wasn't a physically imposing man, but there was a kind of relentless energy in his eyes, in the way he talked. He was known to fly off the handle every once in a while. He was very ambitious and kind of fearless, the type of guy who would see Mike Tyson in his prime and think, I bet I could take him. Curiously enough, this wasn't the first time that Castesana had investigated a sitting head of state. Before leading Sisig, he indicted Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi in Spain for tax fraud. He also put together the legal strategy that led to the arrest of Latin American dictators such as Chile's General Augusto Pinochet and General Jorge Videla from Argentina. But Guatemala was an entirely different beast. And bold as he was, Castesana seemed to recognize this from the outset. The commission was created to take a very specific problem, as through our mandate is broader than that. In 1996, when the peace accords were signed after 36 years of civil war, one of the recommendations of the accords was that the illegal clandestine security apparatus should be dismantled. He's talking about the SIACs, the shadowy criminal organizations that had infiltrated state and business institutions in the wake of the civil war. By this point, the SIACs had all but erased the line between illicit and legitimate power. Everyone knew that these groups controlled large parts of the military, police, and customs, which meant that fighting corruption in Guatemala was like trying to chop off the heads of a hydra. Corruption was everywhere, baked into the cake, to the point that typical anti-corruption measures the kind that had worked in other places, weren't sufficient. 
Castesana would often tell friends that he had taken on an impossible mission. And the only reason they hired him was because Tom Cruise wasn't available. The Spaniard lived in Sisig headquarters, in a room right above his office, and not only because he was a workaholic, which he was. Castesana had been targeted for an assassination attempt almost immediately upon arriving in Guatemala and so was forced to live under heavy protection in almost complete isolation. His wife and children were staying far away in Mexico because even Mexico was safer. And it was too dangerous for Castesana to travel anywhere without a retinue of heavily armed bodyguards. He couldn't even go out for a smoke. Despite these challenges, Castesana's international team of investigators and prosecutors proved effective. Castesana launched an ambitious agenda to purge the Guatemalan justice system of bad apples. CC got rid of over 1,500 corrupt police officers, including 50 commissioners and the deputy director of the national police. They also forced out almost a dozen public prosecutors suspected of being on the take. Sisig had begun the slow, arduous process of reforming Guatemalan criminal justice from within. But Castesana wasn't content with going after the little fish. He wanted a big, fat, moby dick of a white whale. And so, in 2008, Sisig began prosecuting an ex-president of Guatemala named Alfonso Portillo for embezzlement. I think I mentioned him before. Ironically, Castesana was about to start investigating the current president of Guatemala for the same crime, among others. That's because, after receiving heavy pressure from protesters, the opposition party, the Guatemalan media, his own advisors, and even the American ambassador, President Colom agreed on May 12th to refer investigation of the Rosenberg murder to Carlos Castesana and Sisig, which meant that there was officially a new sheriff in town. The National Palace of Guatemala is an old cathedral-like building with a long, turbulent history etched onto its walls. It has witnessed and withstood riots, murders, coups, and earthquakes. I wonder if Carlos Castesana felt the weight of that history as he made his way through the palace's maze-like interior, surrounded by his security detail, on his way for a private meeting with President Colón. On May 12th, yeah, we're still only two days in here. As the protests raged outside, Castesana met with Colón in his office. The president looked exhausted, haggard, even more than usual. His staffers tended to dress him in suits with big shoulder pads to compensate for his skeletal thinness. It just made him look like Slender Man. Colom had spent the past hours managing the crisis on the phone with allies and other liberal leaders of Latin American countries, trying to reassure them that he wasn't a murderer. Now, he was about to put his fate in the hands of a man he'd never met before 
and didn't trust. But what choice did he have? Castesana had his own reservations about taking the case. Investigating a sitting head of state was a tricky task, after all. A little over a year into its mandate, Castesana was reluctant to jeopardize Sisig's independence and reputation by taking on an unwinnable case. And that's what the Rosenberg case was, unwinnable. That's mostly because, for all intents and purposes, the Guatemalan people already considered President Colom guilty. They wanted nothing less than for him to step down and take his rightful place in the confines of a dark prison cell. If the investigation revealed Colom to be culpable, Castesana would be forced to prosecute a president, the equivalent of playing basketball with a hornet's nest. But if Colom were cleared of all charges, the people would be furious. Their rage might snowball into absolute chaos and compel the military to lead a coup d'etat. Like I said, unwinnable. But despite these risks, Castesana wasn't really in a position to refuse the president's request. Here's Stephen Dudley. By, by the time the CC gets the Rosenberg case, the CC has probably in the range of 30 or 40 cases that are in motion, but does not have a single prosecution. So they are struggling to kind of establish this legitimacy in the country. They've done various tasks for the government. They've you know, built out a unit, special unit of, of prosecutors. They're working closely with the police. They're trying to draft new legislation with Congress um, to kind of beef up the tools. But their main purpose, according to the sort of, you know, imagined, um, you know, mandate that everybody had in their head was that they were going to prosecute people, right? They were going to clean out the government. And they really needed a win when they got the Rosenberg case. So this is this becomes this kind of super important case for them. Perhaps succumbing to external pressures, Castesana decided to take on the Rosenberg case, but with one condition complete independence. From the prosecutor's point of view, the only way this was going to work was if President Colom and his wife Sandra vowed to maintain a healthy, hygienic distance from Sisig and the investigation. No pressure, no interference of any kind. The president agreed, but quickly interfered anyway, albeit in an understated way. He declared his innocence, assuring Castesana that there was a conspiracy to oust him from office. He was almost whispering. He seemed scared. Castesana made sure to let the press know that he had made total independence a prerequisite for taking the case. He insisted that Sisig would conduct the investigation in an impartial manner. While Castesana affected a bold, confident air, as always. Privately, he knew that he had just taken on the most difficult case of his life. And he communicated this fact to his team back at Sisig headquarters. 
Although they had several high-profile cases in the works, including against former President Alfonso Portillo, Castesana made the Rosenberg case top priority. He assembled a core team of about 30 agents, 10 of whom were native Guatemalans. But before they could get to work, Castesana received a surprise visitor, Eduardo Rosenberg, Rodrigo Rosenberg's eldest son. Having only buried his father the day before, Eduardo was still reeling from the sudden murder and the sheer bedlam caused by the release of the video. Two days ago, his father had been alive and well. Now he was dead, and the entire country was in upheaval. Still trying to process everything, but placing complete faith in his father, Eduardo wanted to help. He wanted to talk directly with Carlos Castesana, the man now in charge of the case, to see if there was anything he could do. Castesana agreed to meet with Eduardo in private. After offering his condolences, the Spaniard went into prosecutor mode, asking Eduardo some preliminary questions about his father's final days, about the video, about the accusations made against the president. He was looking for any information that could help. Eduardo didn't know much, but agreed to let Castresana's agents perform a search of his father's apartment and office, as well as to hand over his father's personal and business computers. Eduardo wanted to help, but first and foremost, he wanted justice for his father. He wanted Castresana to find whoever was responsible for the murder and put them away, regardless of who it turned out to be. Castesana assured Rosenberg's son that if it came to it, he wouldn't hesitate to go after Colom. He said, I give you my word that if we have to, we will bring down the president and impeach him. At the end of the interview, Eduardo Rosenberg surprised Castesana by recommending that he speak with one of his father's closest friends, a man named Luis Mendizábal. Castesana would eventually interview Mendizábal, but we'll get to that particular conversation in a later episode. The next day, May 13th, Sisig's investigation into the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg began in earnest. It featured over 300 Guatemalan and Sisig agents, analysis of 100,000 phone calls and 9,500 documents, 260 operations and 135 official interviews. It would take eight months to solve and prove to be the most complex and trying case of Castesana's career. But the very first step was an analysis of the crime scene. Castesana dispatched agents to Rosenberg's posh neighborhood to retrace the steps of the initial investigation and to canvas residents in search of a witness. No joy on that second front. The service road where Rosenberg's body had been discovered was narrow, somewhat isolated, and unmonitored by security cameras. Also, because it was early on a Sunday morning, there hadn't been that many people out and about. The upshot was, the actual murder itself, 
the moment the gunman opened fire had not been witnessed by anyone. Castesana's team did uncover something unusual, though. It's kind of a crude way to say this, but Rosenberg fell funny. He was found lying on his back on the grass of an embankment on the side of the service road, his feet hanging over the curb, the heels of his sneakers scuffing against loose piles of dried leaves. But his bike was lying on its side on the street, facing the other way. The handlebars were pointing towards the center of the street, meaning that if Rosenberg was riding his bike when he was shot, the momentum of his fall would have taken the bike in the same direction. The handlebars should have been pointing towards the embankment, towards the dead body lying on top of the grass. The only logical explanation was that Rosenberg wasn't on his bike when the gunman fired the first bullet. Forensic experts determined that Rosenberg was most likely sitting down on the grass prior to being shot. But why? Was he stopping to take a break? That seemed dubious. He was only a block away from his apartment building. Maybe he stopped to check on his bike. Maybe he got a call. As soon as CC got a hold of his phone records, they would check on that. But as confusing as the physics of the crime scene proved to be, there was another, simpler, yet even more beguiling question plaguing Castesana and his team. If Rosenberg feared for his life, if he believed himself under direct threat to the point of recording that video, why was he out of his apartment in the first place? It defied logic. Why would he go out on a solitary Sunday morning bike ride, exposing himself, making himself a target? No one had a good answer to that particular question. Analysis of the crime scene turned out to yield more questions than clues. The lack of an eyewitness was particularly troubling. But after acquiring security tapes from every building in Rosenberg's neighborhood and scouring them closely, the Sisig investigators found their first lead. They analyzed the footage from four separate security cameras in the moments before, during, and after Rosenberg was murdered. At 8.07 a.m., a camera captured Rosenberg riding by on his bike. One minute and 36 seconds later, a jet black sports car followed behind him. Then, another camera caught Rosenberg riding by, passing a parked car. One minute and 26 seconds later, the same camera recorded the same black sports car passing the same parked vehicle, following Rosenberg. What was clear from the footage was that the black sports car, identified as a Mazda 6, was already in position when Rosenberg left his apartment to go on his bike ride, which meant that whoever was in the Mazda 6 was waiting for Rosenberg to come out which meant that they knew he was going to come out. 
Given that Sunday morning bike rides weren't a regular part of Rosenberg's routine, the only way they could have known where he would be and what he was doing was if someone had tipped them off. But who? Was someone following Rosenberg? Monitoring his movements? Was there an inside man? An initial inquiry revealed that only 50 Mazdas of the same model and color as the car that was following Rosenberg were registered in Guatemala. The license plate couldn't be gleaned from the footage, so Castesana and his team were going to have to do some old-fashioned legwork. For the next three weeks, they pounded the pavement, tracking down each of the 50 Mazda 6s in search of someone who might be plausibly connected to the Rosenberg case. Fortunately, this particular Mazda 6 had some distinguishing features. Tinted windows, a racing spoiler, red-rimmed tires, and most distinctively, a sticker on the lid of the gas tank. After a dogged search, Castesana and his team finally got a hit. They had found the Mazda with the red-rimmed tires and the sticker on the gas tank lid. The car was registered to a 33-year-old named William Santos Divas, who lived on the outskirts of Guatemala City. Santos Divas definitely owned the car that had been present at Rosenberg's murder. But that's not how Castresana knew they had found the right man. It was because Santos Divas was an ex-cop. He was a former member of the Policia Nacional Civil, the National Civil Police. This is the National Police Force of Guatemala. I'll use the Spanish acronym PNC when referring to it. It's actually an agency of the Ministry of the Interior, which means that the person ultimately in charge of the PNC was President Colón. So to sum up, we've got an ex-cop from a government-run police force, potentially involved in a murder where the main suspect is the head of that same government. Was Santos Divas still connected to the PNC? Were there active police officers working with him, providing him with information or tips, or even participating in the hit? Castesana and his team would soon get answers to those questions. And what they found would shift the Rosenberg case into an entirely different direction. The CSIG team would soon uncover a network of former and current police officers moonlighting as sicarios, contract killers. The next question was, who hired them? And if there really was a conspiracy to kill Galim Musa and then Rodrigo Rosenberg, how far up did it go? That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now, ad-free.
Trust me, you won't want to miss it.